Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care, and we're doing our November podcast, and I am so excited because we have members of the Camden Coalition here with us today to talk about the terrific work that they're doing. Um, there are three members, uh, Corey Waller, who's a triple-boarded physician who serves as the Senior Medical Director of Education and Policy for the Coalition, Laura Harden, who's a nurse and serves as the Senior Director of Cross-Continuum Transformation, and we're going to talk about that in a bit, and Victoria Sale, who's also a nurse and is involved in cross-site learning and workforce development. And so welcome, everybody. Thank you, Pat. We're really excited to be here with you today. Great. Well, I'm excited, too, as you can tell. Um, And uh, what I thought we'd start out with, and Corey, I'm going to start with you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Camden Coalition uh, for people who may not know about the work that they're doing and um, describe a little bit about how they started and where they are today? Sure. Yeah, you know, this uh, this whole adventure started about 10 years ago with uh, Jeff uh, Brenner, Dr. Jeff Brenner, who was a family medicine doctor and who was really treating patients uh, directly in Camden and was having a hard time at it and got really frustrated by the fact that he couldn't uh, maintain a practice uh, based on just normal reimbursement and doing the right thing. I and mean, then he kept seeing these same patients over and over and were getting admitted and, and just really felt like the whole system wasn't working the way that it should and started to try to get some data to determine why this was happening. And what he found is that there were a small number of people that were accounting for a large portion of cost, and that those people lived in very specific areas within the city. And and that's kind of where the whole pathway for the Camden Coalition started, which was a a large Atul Gawande article that focused on hotspotting, which was looking for patients who uh, were these very high cost patients in a very concentrated area. And, and that really broke open the whole pathway for coming up with a better intervention for these patients that really got to the core of their problem instead of just medicalizing everything and realizing we need to look at the social ailments of these patients no differently than the medical issues that we take care of on a regular basis. And, and as that progressed, he started to accumulate uh, really his merry band of me- medical warriors, and, and they worked together um, up to the point where it's now kind of logarithmically taken off over the last four years, and we now have close to 100 people as a part of the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers. Wow, that's, that's amazing growth. And uh, I did read that Atul Gawande Hotspotter article. I think it's one of the more famous articles that, that he's written. Um, and it was, it was a breakthrough. Um, so, Victoria, I, I know that you've been with the coalition almost since the beginning. Do you have anything that you want to add to Corey's description? Uh, I think the thing that I'm most proud of about the coalition that um, – I have to say, as we've evolved, is really the the people that have stayed and have been here and the culture that we have here. I think um, the coalition is a really special place that is, at its core, really anchored in core values and believes in trauma-informed care and harm reduction and and comes from a place of, of relationship building with people. And I think that plays out in the way that we do policy and it plays out in the way that we work with patients. Um, and I think more than anything, if, if I wanted anyone to know anything about the coalition, that's what it would be. 
Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a great place to work. Um, so, Lauren, you have the most complicated title, or at least the title that was hardest for me to figure out. What on earth is a cross-continuum transformation, and how does the work that you're doing fit into um, the clinical and education and policy work um, that, uh, that, that the uh, organization is doing? That's a very good question. And um, one of the things that we've all learned in working with complex patients is that um, the solutions to stabilization and resolution of complicated issues don't just come from one person intervening with a patient, but it, it comes from uh, collaboration across systems and across disciplines to get really good stabilization. So I come from Trinity Health System originally, where I worked in a very large complex care uh, model that I created. When I started, we had no funding. So the model that we created was built on how could we uh, get the best output and, and results for complex patients by collaborating across systems and across disciplines and sharing resources. So cross-continuum transformation, a lot of my work is around how do we change the system and improve delivery? How do we build collaboration across disciplines and really scale up the ability to make a difference in the lives of complex patients? And so, Lauren, is, is this cross-continuum just within the healthcare system, or does it also include organizations out in the community? It definitely includes organizations in the community. What we all have found in our work is that um, complex situations in patients are not just about medical disease. So it often involves um, mental health issues or addiction, but it also involves really heartbreaking circumstances with people being unable to get housing or transportation or um, have things like grief and loss attended to in their care. And it really takes a village to solve some of those problems. And it's very exciting when we come together and share resources across systems to really make a difference in patients' lives. And so just operationally, how do you carry that out? Do you have you know, a lot of meetings and everybody sits around the table from all these different organizations? Are you out in the field? Um, how, do you, how do you actually, it's one thing to say I'm going to work across all those different organizations and departments and sections and so forth, and it's another that actually really make it happen. How do you make it happen? Exactly. So there's a few different structures, and um, if you start with a principle of um, collaboration is what's going to make a difference here, and then you organize it around the person-centered story. You can identify who needs to be sitting around the table to make a difference. In the model that I was working in, um, one of the standards of what we did is first identify who was already engaged with the patient, and then invite them to a shared conference to develop a shared plan of care. And then that shared plan of care was embedded in the health record and um, in the system itself. When you look at the community, you can find organized around that person, what are the agencies that need to come together to solve the issues for that patient? But then as a community, what are the process improvements we need to work on together as a community around those patient-centered issues? So it's not one everybody all the time at the table, it's the people that are most important to that patient-centered story. And I have one more question about this, which is, um, are you using some variation of an elaborate electronic health record? How, how are you communicating? Is it paper, technology? Uh, I don't mean in the meetings, but 
let's say I missed a meeting and I want to catch up on where a patient's at, what does that look like? What's that uh, communication infrastructure? So that's a very good question. Across the country, there's a lot of different um, infrastructures emerging to do that. Many people are experimenting with what would a shared care plan look like on the health information exchange, so um, a centralized resource. The piece I was working with in the Trinity Health System, we used very simple technology that already existed in the electronic health record with alerts that popped up where people could see that shared plan. But you can also do it on paper. The principle of what happens when people come together around a person-centered story and they recognize, I'm not alone in this, and it's really important that we're linking with each other and not reinventing the wheel. Just the act of being aware of that and coming to the table with, with the principle of collaboration starts to build that bridge together. So you can do that on paper, you can do that in technology, or you can build a fabulously expensive system. It depends on what the resources are that you have to do that. With. It's, uh, it's interesting because it's, so different from the way I trained when we took people out of their lives and you come into a, a clin clinical office and we take you out of your clothes. I remember yeah. taking care of a patient once that I, I had never seen him stand up and I didn't realize that he was short and I didn't realize that he was a, a national expert in certain kinds of gems because he was just a patient laying in the bed. This is such a... Um, such a huge advance from the way medicine uh, used to be practiced. I, I really congratulate, congratulate all of you for doing this. And Victoria, I thought that it would help make it real for our listeners if you could take us through a, a typical case and um, describe for us, say, the complexities of that case and, and give us examples of how you actually help to work with the patient and his family and his community um, to lower um, the, the, the risk that he had for bouncing in and out of the hospital? Sure. So the patient that comes to mind um, is actually a patient that really represents the story of the coalition as an organization and not just uh, her case alone. So the, for the sake of the podcast, I will call her Gloria. And she was one of the first patients that I worked with when I arrived in Camden about five years ago. Um, so she, I, I basically had a list of names of people who were really expensive, and I had a couple of pieces of information about them. Um, I knew their name, I knew um, their address, and I knew um, what primary care doctor they had and generally what they were going to the hospital for and when the last time they were in the hospital was. Um, so I first met Gloria in the hospital, and we talked for a little bit. Um, and I quickly discovered that she, she told me that if I wanted to follow up with her after the hospital visit, I would have to find her in the transportation center. And she told me that the address that she had given on the medical record was actually not where she was living and that she lived in the transportation center. And if I wanted to follow up with her, I could find her there. So um, in the very early days, uh, me and, and one other clinician that worked on staff would go and wander around the transportation center and a couple other community spots that we knew uh, she hung out at. And we would go for sometimes hours looking for her um, to see what was happening. And we learned when we met Gloria at the transportation center um, that she was also had been addicted to heroin for about 20 years of her life. Um, and that she was homeless and addicted. Um, and so we would find her at various points and meet with her at various points. And we sort of 
The thing I remember most about her were her eyes when she would look up at me when I would meet her in the transportation center. She would wear a hoodie oftentimes, and when she would see me, she would take off the hood um, and look up at us, and we would talk for a little while. And we had given her our card, and it seemed like the card became an anchor point for the relationship. So we would hear from Gloria every once in a while. She would call us and ask us if we knew a place that she could get food or if we knew a place that she could get clothing. But ultimately, um, she she wasn't able to get into a shelter because she was very medically complex, and, and the shelter's weren't able to accommodate that. At the time, we had a really difficult time finding her housing. And at that point in the coalition's history, the intervention was largely cobbled together, quite honestly, by a lot of informal relationships that we as clinicians at the coalition had developed. So if I wanted to get someone into a nursing home, I knew the director of the nursing home and I would do Zumba with that person. And then I would get a favor from the director of the nursing home to be able to get somebody in. So we often had these informal relationships that really were responsible for the way that the intervention existed. And what I started to do with her was start to call in all of the people that I knew that I felt could help with her case. Um, And ultimately, I hit barrier after barrier after barrier, and none of the relationships that I had really were able to help. Um, So there was one particular time, which was about three years ago, and it was the last time I had heard about Gloria. Um, I met her at her primary care doctor called me and said, she's here. I need you to come see her. Um, And because she was transient, because she was homeless, whenever she would come to an institution, we would always get called. So we would go and we would see her. And that day we walked into her primary care office and it was lunchtime. There was no one else in the office. And this was after many months of meeting her in the transportation center and spending time with her and and getting to know her and, and really recognizing that there had been profound things that had happened to her in her life that the heroin addiction was a way to get out of the pain of what had happened to her. And the more that we learned about her story, the more we learned that uh, that heroin seemed like a very logical way to cope with what was happening in her thoughts and in what and things that were coming up for her on a regular basis that she had to cope with. Um, It was a very logical escape from that pain. We met her in her primary care office and she sat with me and cried and said, I really want to stop. I don't know how to stop. I really want to stop and I don't know how to stop. Um, And for about 45 minutes, we sat together um, and she cried. And that the the ambulance came, quite honestly, um, and took her away. And that was the last time I saw her and we weren't able to do anything. Um, She was somebody who continued to utilize the hospital and we were completely stuck. And at that point, I remember leaving that day and being completely devastated and exhausted, emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted. It also made me recognize that there was a massive turning point that needed to happen within our organization and that many of the ways that we were interacting with patients was that the, sto- the hero of the story was us. The hero of the story was our SWAT team that would come around people and sort of fix them and fix their lives. And that makes me cringe to say now because that was very much the narrative of our intervention was that we were a fixing intervention for people in their lives. We started to recognize that in order for us to move forward as an organization, we had to have a frame of, of servant leadership. So servant leadership really comes through empowering folks 
who are within the community to be the hero of their own story. And we uplift that and support that with what we do. So very much had a dramatic change in the intervention and made it much more about what people wanted and what people felt was the most important thing to address in their life. It turns out um, just recently, we started a program called Housing First, which is the idea of housing regardless of sobriety. So it is a program in which patients are given homes regardless of their ability at the time to be sober or their, will, or their desire at the time to be sober, whatever capacity that is. Um, and so Gloria was a recipient of this program. She actually uh, qualified just recently. And the beautiful piece to the story, quite honestly, is, is she is now in a home um, through the Housing First program. I was able to witness her with her brother and daughter, who at the time that I engaged with her, um, both were completely disconnected from her life and her story. And um, their relationship had been severed to the point that they didn't want to engage with her. Um, our care team reached out to her family and actually helped to reconnect them. And when I walked in our house, there was a picture frame with number one mom and her daughter's picture in it um, from her daughter's graduation. Our care team spent time with her talking about how they had found her shelters and the, the most beautiful part of the story was watching our social worker who grew up in Camden himself, who now works on our intervention. And essentially, um, he started to ask her to name all of the pivotal points of change within the intervention. And you could physically see her body start to become more proud as she named that she was the one who actually made the decision to get on Suboxone and, and receive treatment for her addiction. She was the one who moved forward with all the steps necessary to get into housing first. She was the one who collected all the paperwork and did all, all the documentation. And so the, the hero of the story doesn't become us anymore, it becomes the patient. Well, that, that's an amazing story and, and uh, an amazing outcome uh, as well. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it had a good ending um, or a good middle, I hope. But as I listen to the story, it's so different than the way care is usually provided. It raises in my mind, um, how, how, do you, how do you pay for this? How do you, how do you pay personnel? How do you, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're involved in paying for some of the housing. Um, how, Corey, tell me, how is the coalition funded? And, and is that funding sustainable? Um, both for the clinical work you do, but also for the other work that you do. And and I think if you could mix into that, part of the problem I think we've had with doing things creative in medicine is the, is the traditional payers, right? They pay for things that we do to people in a clinical setting with a clinical code. Um, so if you could also weave in what kinds of relationships the coalition has, if any, with traditional payers, that would be great. Well, I'll start that explanation by saying the coalition was built on relationships, and it wasn't just built on relationships with payers, but really the entire community to help uplift it early and, and really be behind it both emotionally and, uh, and physically and showing up and also monetarily early to help support it uh, from, uh, from that standpoint. But what that also did is set it up to be one of the most trusted things in this area so that it was easy to partner with other payers so that all of the hospital systems are now a part of this uh, intervention. There's money that comes from the three different hospital systems that are uh, around here, as well as um, they've now 
within the Camden Coalition. And it's, it's funny because when people talk about the Camden Coalition, they, they generally think it's just the intervention piece and people going out and seeing patients. But uh, that's probably about a third of the actual manpower of what's now almost 100 people. And with, with that, we have an accountable care organization that is there to help deliver um, better services to these patients through getting them faster access to primary care, making sure that they have good performances that are done to them while they're at primary care, and being able to uplift that. So there's money that comes from the state into the accountable care organization that stabilizes it. Uh, the interventions that happen get paid both by the um, ACO as well as some of the payers, so they're supported by the, uh, the payers. The one thing we have to look at is cost avoidance versus uh, total cost. And, and payers want to avoid cost because they get all their money up front. And so they want to pay for an intervention that will avoid future costs. And then hospitals want to avoid unpaid care when you look at um, you know, the, the monetary aspect of it. So for things like 30-day readmission rates and uh, things that they wouldn't, you know, readmissions because they had an infection in a wound that they don't get paid for because it's paid for in a bucket. Moms who uh, have a C-section that gets infected and have to go back, that does, those are things that don't get paid for um, in the hospital setting. And so they're willing to uh, support the intervention based on decreasing those um, high-risk areas. So for the intervention, that's really sustainable from its own clinical intervention and the wraparound service payments that come from cost avoidance from the ACO and the payers, as well as the hospitals wanting to avoid unpaid care. Now, the rest of this, we have a large number of grants that focus on things like data and the integration of data and how we overlay very usually disconnected pieces of data, um, how we uh, look at uh, other interventions that we do outside of the walls of Camden, like our cross-site learning team that does technical assistance around the country um, in California and in New York, and we have um, starting things in, in North Carolina and in Michigan, and uh, a lot of different areas that we're helping to onboard whatever the right program is for their institution. So it's not trying to just disperse the, quote, Camden model. It's really about finding what patient population are they trying to improve and doing that? And with that, we're able to then uh, bring in money from uh, helping people to, to do this work. So organizationally, um, it's complex, but the intervention itself is sustained, as I described before, and the system is sustained by really having our hands in a number of different areas. And in fact, I would say at this point, every area that is required to do good work for complex patients, we touch. And that's been a, a, a thing that's changed over the last couple of years as part of the growth is really finding people that fit gaps and, and can overcome barriers that were found either in policy, um, in healthcare law, in uh, criminal justice, in addiction or behavioral health or care coordination or therapy and behavioral health. All of those have been added in here. And it's the people that have been added are those that have really done the care. So that adds another layer to sustainability in a sense that everybody here has done it before and we're not having to make it up. And so I'm going to close with something that is a segue to what you just said, which is 
how you are going about building capacity so the program can reach far more people. Um, we did do a story recently about your hotspotting fellowship, and I know that you have a student hotspotting program. Can you tell us just briefly about that? And for people who are listening who might want to start changing the way they practice or taking care of patients or improving their community, how they can get involved. And you can include some information about your upcoming conference. Sure. So uh, our technical assistance arm and student hotspotting, quite honestly, developed very organically. Um, we, as we started to have more media attention on Camden, various healthcare systems and um, academic institutions sort of started calling to ask questions about what we could do about partnering. Um, and so, and could we come and teach on various topics and could we help them figure out what to do with their population health management? So it developed very organically. It was never something we sort of uh, thought we would be doing or go into. And, and it turns out now it's an entire department at the coalition and, and we've evolved to be this national center for complex health and social needs, which Lauren will talk about in a second. Um, so student hotspotting is probably one of the projects that's most near and dear to everybody's heart in this building. We have currently 30 schools that participate from across the country. So it's 30 colleges and universities. And the students form interdisciplinary teams. So there's a medical student, a nursing student, social work student, occupational therapy student, um, public health student, dental student. And it's essentially five students on one team. They can pick a variety of folks. And they go and pick up a hotspotting patient. So they go and pick up a person in their community who is very vulnerable, complex, and expensive. Um, and they work with that person within the healthcare system, um, and they go visit that person at home and in, in the community, and they really get a, they do a go and see, a true go and see of what that person's life is like. So if they go to the social service agency to apply for some sort of benefits, they actually physically wait with them there. They spend time getting to know their family and their story. They accompany them to medical appointments. Um, and they have incredibly beautiful stories. So one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is there was a woman um, who was one of the patients of the hotspotting teams who got kicked out of all of her dialysis facilities. So she was fired from all of her dialysis facilities because she would yell at the staff and make threatening comments to the staff. And so essentially got fired from all of her dialysis in facilities in the community. The student hotspotters worked with her and discovered that she really loved art. And so they bought her um, sketchbooks. And now she is completely, so basically she sketches during dialysis now and she has her reduction. She never went back to the hospital. She, her, all of her hospital utilization was being driven by dialysis. Um, and she currently is using dialysis and doing sketch work and has been completely um, her, her quality of life and, and what the student hotspotters did with her was profound. And it was really because it, they learned to build the relationship with the person and found out that she really loved art. That's a fantastic story. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm sorry to cut you short. We could talk forever because it's uh, such interesting work that you're all doing. Um, uh, Lauren, did you want to just say a few words about the, uh, about the conference and then we'll wrap it up? Definitely. So an exciting thing that's happening is the AARP, Atlantic Philanthropies, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation have all um, partnered together as founding sponsors of a national center to help spread this work and make it available to others. 
there's a conference called Putting Care at the Center that's happening on December 7 through 9. The intent of the center is to be able to share and spread the knowledge, build interprofessional and community-wide collaborations to help complex patients and start to build out the field of complex care. We all need to get better in this arena. And one of the exciting things about the philosophy of Camden is to share that work and to create a foundation for people to come together and solve complex problems collaboratively. Well, I want to thank you all, Corey, Lauren, Victoria, um, for spending time with us uh, to help our listeners understand what the Camden Coalition and all its different centers or departments are, are involved in. And I, I want to also thank you for the work that you do. This really is, um, I think, a breakthrough in our understanding of how to put people back in their lives and help them, as you said, to understand that they really are the hero of their own story. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you. Putting Care at the Center, the inaugural conference of the National Center for Complex Health and Social Needs, will take place December 7th through 9th in Philadelphia. The conference is sold out, but the American Journal of Managed Care will be attending to report on sessions and conduct video interviews. Coverage from the conference will be published on AJMC.com.